Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Monday, September 21st, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Our October issue is online at commentarymagazine.com. So much great stuff. I don't even know where to begin. Led, of course, as we have mentioned repeatedly before, by Christine Rosen's article, Yes, You Will Be Reeducated, or excuse me, You Will Be Reeducated, a follow-up on Yes, This Is a Revolution by A. Greenwald. And it just so happens that on the show today are senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And, of course, back from a two-day sojourn actually out of his house. And in, <laughs> I, I think you may even have stayed in a hotel he did. He oh, my God. A hotel. Live to tell the tale. Noah Rothman, associate <laughs> Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, so we got nothing to talk about, so we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I just don't even know where to begin. So, uh, can I just describe the first hour of ratiocination on my part upon hearing of the uh, passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday night. I went from, oh my God, this is the last thing the country needs. And to, oh my God, well, you know, Mitch McConnell said that there shouldn't be a vote before an election in 2016, so he'll never be able to have a vote now. To, uh, oh my God, what's going to happen because Biden will probably win and then there'll be a, you know, whatever. And then um, in about an hour, the following thought occurred to me, which is this. It says in the Constitution that the president shall nominate a Supreme Court justice and the Senate shall advise and consent to that nomination. It doesn't say what the rules are in an election year. It doesn't say what the rules are if the president and the Senate are of different parties, since, of course, there were no parties when the Constitution was written. It doesn't say that 46 days is an insufficient amount of time to confirm a Supreme Court justice. It says nothing except that the president nominates and the Senate advises and consents. Therefore, every single judicial nomination can follow any pattern that it wants, according to the Constitution, as long as the president nominates and the Senate advises and consents, at which point every objection that anybody can levy about how this is happening and why it should wait until uh, the 4th of November and all of that, in my mind, just goes entirely by the wayside. The president in 2016 nominated Merrick Garland. That was Barack Obama. The Republicans were in control of the Senate and prevented his having a hearing, uh, prevented there even being a hearing on the nomination, let alone a vote. Was that dirty pool? Was it not fair? Did it not follow the precedent? Were there not the rules? Was this not comedy? All of that can be true. But none of that gets to the central point, which is that the president nominates a Supreme Court justice, the Senate advises and consents. Period. It doesn't say how long. It doesn't say what the time frame is. It says nothing. Therefore, the constitutional process is if Trump nominates a Supreme Court justice, uh, the Senate can then advise and consent or reject. That could happen before the election, could happen after the election. Every piece of, uh, of um, punditry that suggests that this is a much more complicated matter uh, and that therefore, because of X, no one should appoint anyone uh, until after the election. Or Trump should appoint someone, but M- uh, Mitch McConnell shouldn't try to schedule a hearing until after the election because it'll be illegitimate. None of it is illegitimate. This is all politics. It's all politicking. If the Senate advises and consents the nomination of a Supreme Court justice, that Supreme Court justice is on the Supreme Court, period, end of discussion, legitimate, period doesn't say that it should be 60 votes. It doesn't say the filibuster. It says nothing. It doesn't say there needs to be a hearing. It doesn't say there needs to be a judiciary committee. There was no judiciary, period. And this is where I am now. 
I have no idea what the politics are. I don't know whether McConnell, whether McConnell will schedule the vote before the election or after, if he has the votes to do it before, if he's going to do a favor for Cory Gardner and Susan Collins and other struggling uh, Republicans and let the, let the vote and Susan uh, and, um, and Lisa Murkowski and wait till after the election. I have no idea. All I know is if the president nominates and McConnell schedules the vote tomorrow or schedules it for December 7th, it's of no consequence in terms of what's fair, what's not fair, whether the Supreme Court will be illegitimate or legitimate. And that's where I came out about two hours or three hours after I heard about this on, on as we say, Arab uh, Rosh Hashanah. Abe, well, where are you? Oh, I'm sorry. Christine, no, no, go ahead, Abe, go. Well, I mean, I, you're right, of course, on the on the merits, on the as a constitutional matter. Um, the you wouldn't, of course, uh, know this to hear the punditry because the punditry is is about what what all the punditry is has been about now um, for the longest time, which is that everything that happens is a threat or a potential threat to democracy itself, right? Um, but as a political matter, um, it is interesting and discomforting the degree of hypocrisy on both sides um now right i mean yeah of course the the um mcconnell um now coming out on the precisely the other side of the question of um appointing a judge during an election year is is just bald hypocrisy but so too are are the countless examples of the Democrats who are now opposing it on some sort of ground, on some sort of um, ground having to do with um, the sanctity of, of government or something, when this is not at all where they were on Merrick Garland. Well, the, the, there's, a, there's a real lack of distinction being made, I think, on the part of Democrats right now between what the Constitution says, as John outlined very clearly, and norms and and kind of informal rules that have developed over time. So before the 1970s, we didn't have these lengthy spans of time between a nomination to the court and and confirmation, right? I mean, things were much speedier. We got into a kind of uh, habit of having lengthier time to vet candidates and, and whatnot. Um, so that that distinction is is elided. What strikes me as sort of shocking is that the, it's the same side that has been arguing for years now, ever since Trump was elected, uh, that we should abolish certain norms because they allowed Trump to happen. Things like the Electoral College, for example, um, I, the idea of packing the Supreme Court so that your side will have more power as the court has has turned more conservative over the last few decades. So I feel like that that suddenly the embrace of norms now <laughs> strikes me as rather instrumental, and I'm quite skeptical of it. In the same way that yes, Abe, I agree. I mean, to, to argue that McConnell is just Mr. Principal and, and doesn't he knows how to wield his power, and as I recall, it was for former President Barack Obama, who reminded all of us that elections have consequences, right? If you have power, you use it. And McConnell is using the power that he has, and he is not doing anything to break any sort of constitutional uh, rule in doing so. And it's it's just it's just a sign of how um, strange these polarized times have become in the Trump era, that, that the discussion of norms has shifted so wildly in just, you know, 48 hours. Writing about this <clears throat> a little bit today, it is striking the extent to which the um, bleeding that you hear from Democrats and the activist left is so nakedly empty um, and, 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 and a function of their own impotence. They have set the stage to strip themselves of the procedural tools that would allow them to prevent these outcomes. And what they are left with is extortion. Well, you, you know what? This. You've got it. You, you you should you should elaborate on this point because briefly the thing the, that could have saved them is the filibuster. Correct. And what Which happened to the filibuster? Instinctual hostility towards. Well, in 2013, they pushed the nuclear option. They wanted to fill lower court appointments that Republicans were blocking, as was their prerogative, and they got rid of the the filibuster for judicial nominees at the lower level. And uh, in 2016. Uh, they left it for Supreme Court nominees um, because that wasn't a political issue at the time. In 2016, Republicans put, uh, took a step further and eliminated the uh, filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. So then we started filling up the Supreme Court with Trump nominees. 
Um, and now, obviously, the legislative filibuster is on the table. They've been talking about this for quite some time, which gets to my point. What they're saying now is you do this and we will eliminate the legislative filibuster. We will pack the court. We might even shut down the country and set cities on fire and start rioting. And a discerning observer might look around and say, well, that was all on the table before. You never stopped talking about any of this. Look around the country and say, oh, we might set cities on fire and shut down the country. That's describing the status quo for millions of Americans. The legislative filibuster has been on the table for a long time to the extent that Joe Biden is now even entertaining the notion that it should be eliminated well before Justice Ginsburg's died because Republicans might be, quote, too obstreperous. And of course, court packing, which has been something we've been talking about since 2018, which was coincidentally the last time Donald Trump had the opportunity to appoint someone to the Supreme Court, has again been something we've discussed ad nauseum for the last two and a half years with or without Justice Ginsburg. All of this would still be on the table. So these aren't really threats so much as just this real display of impotence. I agree with Abe that there's at least a force of moral suasion behind the notion that Republicans are acting hypocritically. But hypocrisy is never an obstacle in politics. They should, that should be an eraser. It's a rule of thumb. Hypocrisy on your side is never an obstacle because your side will always forgive it. Well, it's not just that it's it's not just that it's not an obstacle, right? I mean, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, right? That's the classic thing. So when Mitch McConnell says, I'm not going to confirm Merrick Garland in 2016 because there's a chance that we're going to win the election, there's a chance we'll win the election, and uh, then we can appoint somebody. So I'm going to play the long game and block this, right? That's what he says. And then he has to come up with some nonsense explanation that because we're different parties, or let the public in with rational different obviously with different parties you could have this as now a matter for a plebiscitory decision that was all in bad faith and everybody knew it at the time that's why liberals and everybody were screaming this whole you know explanation of how why that was okay just like biden's explanation in 1992 of why it shouldn't happen because right. he also wanted to wait until clinton until until there was an election and maybe democrats would win so then you come up with some Talmudic, you know, factitious explanation. Lindsey Graham say, you, I tell you right now, you hold me to account for saying this. There shouldn't be a vote on a Supreme Court justice in an election year. It took Lindsey Graham seven seconds to say, <laughs> I'm happy to vote on this. You know why? Because he didn't mean it. Because, and you know what? He shouldn't have meant it. And neither should McConnell. The Supreme Court the choice of a nomination of the nominee for a Supreme Court, which is why liberals are going so crazy, because the court is very, very is court is very important to conservatives as a check against liberals. The court is very important to liberals as a second legislative body that does things that it likes if they have control of it that they can't get legislatures to do. Conservatives need the Supreme Court to hold democratic liberal ambitions back. Liberals want the Supreme Court as a second tool. So arguably, you could say that it's more important for liberals than it is for conservatives. But every this is a lifetime appointment, and it's very important. And what Lindsey Graham happened to say to cover his ass in 2016 or 2017 or 2018 isn't as important as the potential to be involved in the choice of a Supreme Court justice who will serve for the rest of his life because uh, the time is short. That is actually a that is actually a sacrifice in a weird way. I'm not going to praise, you know, like being dishonest or mendacious in the fashion that you know in the fashion that McConnell and 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 Graham are exposed as being. But it's more like, okay, you, I'm going to take the hits here. I'm taking the hits. This is too important for me to have to stand on my pride about what I said before. Well, and you can argue, and it's about power. You can also argue that McConnell, for McConnell, the, the, the crossing the Rubicon moment for him was the elimination of the filibuster. He went on the floor of the Senate and he said, you are not, this is a bad idea. This is going to come back to haunt you. Don't do this. And I feel like ever since that moment that he, if it's just pure, purely power, purely instrumental and, and you're blowing up all the norms and there's, you know, the civility is on the decline. 
why not do it that way? I mean, from his perspective, it, he's been pretty consistent since that moment. So, you know, he can he can say, oh, well, you know, Obama was a lame duck and Trump is up for re-election. I mean, he can make all these you know particular rules. But the point is, the norms were blown up for the nomination and confirmation process when Robert Bork was nominated. That was a huge norm implosion right there. There was a second one with the filibuster. So in some sense, we have been living with the aftershocks of those norm breakages for some time. So I don't see much of this as being dramatically new, to be honest. Look, look, we have had, I'm trying to count now, from Bork on, uh, Bork-Ginsburg-Kennedy nominations, Thomas uh, K, um, Ginsburg, Breyer, Alito, Souter, Gorsuch, Kagan, Gorsuch, okay, right, so... Uh, who whose character was assassinated? Bork's character was assassinated. Thomas's character was assassinated. Uh, Kavanaugh's character was assassinated. Has there ever been a character assassination? I don't want to play whataboutism here, but have Republicans ever assassinated the character of a... There was a slight character assassination effort made against Sonia Sotomayor. You know who led it? Jeff Tubin. Jeff Tubin published a piece in The New Yorker about how everybody who served with her on, on, on an appeals court thought she was stupid because he probably presumably had somebody else in mind he thought would be a better Supreme Court justice. That wasn't a, that wasn't a conservative. This is Jeff Tubin who um, went on uh, TV yesterday to say that there should be riots in the streets because, because there might be a vote on a Supreme Court justice following along the dictates of the Constitution. That's why there should be a riot in the streets because of this norm breakage. They love norms. Oh, whoa, hmm. norms are just the most wonderful thing on earth. I mean, let's face it, like this is the whataboutism stuff is crazy because conservatives have tended not to make a gigantic stink about liberal Supreme Court nominations. I mean, Elena Kagan was 2010, I think. I mean, nobody had a big, nobody had a fit. And what's more, nobody raised $100 million on it either. You know, and it's not like you couldn't, you can assassinate anybody's character, particularly when you make stuff up, like people made stuff up about Brett Kavanaugh. Let us not forget that stuff was made up about Brett Kavanaugh. Lies were told about Brett Kavanaugh, and we have no reason to believe that Christine Blasey Ford was telling the truth. None. We have no contempt. In fact, her key character witness says it didn't happen. The one person she names as having been present at the supposed event says it didn't happen. And well, yet, also she was strong-armed, or at least perceived herself to be under <clears throat> strong-armed by, by the Blasey Ford. Crew Correct. by the crew who wanted to take Kavanaugh down, right? Yeah. So Which also all- argues against a lengthy confirmation process. And Democrats yes. are the stage uh, for the conditions by which Republicans will race towards a confirmation process. Because yeah. why would you give them the opportunity Look, to do it to do what they did to Brett Kavanaugh and, and invent narratives? Let's go back to 1987. Bob Bork was nominated in April or May, something like that. I can't quite remember when, and that gave. Teddy Kennedy went on the floor of the United States Senate, said he wants to send us all back to the Stone Age with back alley abortions. And there wasn't a hearing until September, October. And that gave them three months of organizing time. Three months of organizing time. And that's one of the reasons that Bork was taken down. Also, he was a controversial, it was an interesting moment of uh, understanding what was going on in the culture political wars that began uh, with Reagan because um, he was a controversial pick and uh, Republicans did not have the Senate. And in some naive fashion, they sort of thought that the old rules would apply where in the end, because he was distinguished, he was a, he was a judge, he'd been a professor at Yale law school. He was considered the foremost conservative legal scholar of his time and therefore unimpeachable. They didn't think that he could be impeached. I mean, impeached his characters, motives, whatever, his standing. 
could be impeached. And they were wrong because the rules had changed. And it wasn't conservatives who changed the rules. It was Teddy Kennedy and Arya Nair at the end and the uh, – uh, what, what was Ari and I are running then? What uh, the ACLU and uh, various other groups and created the modern confirmation, fight, you know, like took the modern confirmation fight to a new level. And then, of course, the late hit on Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill, again, literally no evidence that anything Anita Hill said was true. And and in the end, by the way, the American people did not believe Anita Hill. Had they believed her, Clarence Thomas would not be on the court right now. The polling went 60-40 against her. Everybody in America watched those hearings. So the idea that I'm, we're going to get lectured to on, on the niceties of a, nom- of a nomination procedure by these people, like, screw you people. Well, that's also- a, this, is, this is an argument for actually going back to what the previous norms for confirmation processes had been, both in terms of what, they're, what they should be assessing these nominees. Previous nominees who were rejected were rejected because they were either criminally corrupt or had some other egregious reason why they wouldn't be able to perform their duty on the bench. It really wasn't about ideological opposition. But I think since, since in the modern age, what we have allowed is a norm to develop where outside activist groups, and this occurs on both sides, but the left has been much more effective at at activating and prosecuting their case through their activist uh, groups to control the process. I mean, they make demands of senators. You have to give us time to investigate this. You have to do so that there's a there's a sense in which outside unelected, very powerful and well-funded organizations are having an, an effect on a process that they were never meant to have. So if we can streamline the confirmation process and, and push it through without months and months of digging around in oppo research, I don't think that's necessarily a bad outcome. It's not outside organizations entirely. I mean, George Stephanopoulos seems to have invented the idea that you can and should impeach the president if he were to pursue and if Congress were to uh, to confirm a nominee in a lame duck session. What speaking of norm, where does that come from? This is explicitly turning this tool of the Constitution, an extraordinary remedy in the Constitution, into just another procedural mechanism to get what you want. Um, I can't think of a more norm violating procedure, and it seems and it seems to have caught on with the left as though this is. AOC this is, said something similar over the weekend. Well, well, so we have such a problem with lame duck sessions as though it's not a, a, a itself a constitutional mandate. Go ahead and eliminate cons- uh, lame duck sessions if you have such a problem with it. If they're so illegitimate, Let's but, go back. They, they, they're illegitimate only insofar as you get things done that you that they don't like during. Let's- Let's talk about why Merrick Garland wasn't confirmed in 2016. Why wasn't Merrick Garland confirmed in 2016? Because in 2014, Republicans won nine seats and took control of the Senate. Why did Republicans win nine seats and take control of the Senate? Because Barack Obama blew it. That's why. Because Barack Obama uh, lost the House in 10 and lost the Senate in 14 because he started – one of the reasons that he lost both was that he overreached. It was – huge overreach on his part, cultural overreach, political overreach, and constitutional overreach, and handed Republicans the ability to win nine seats. So if they want to fight, if they want to scream and yell about why Merrick Garland isn't on the court and why these norms have all been blasted, once again, it is time for them to look in the mirror and say that Barack Obama (laughs) destroyed their party, brought about a House and a Senate in Republican hands, and basically because he was such a he was so blind to all political realities except his own that Hillary Clinton was a tragically bad and deficient nominee, and that he shouldn't have pushed Joe Biden out of the way because look where Joe Biden is now. Joe Biden, you know, in in you know half speed, Joe Biden is you know a seventy five percent shot to win the presidency. What if Joe Biden had been the nominee in 2016? Oh, but, but I mean, this is, again, there's some historical revision here. It's a real gamble on McConnell's part to stick to that pledge. In February, when Antonin Scalia died, it was by no means assured that Donald Trump would be the nominee. And for much of that year, it was by no means assured that he would be the president. It would have been easy for him to, re- to renege on that pledge and, and go ahead and confirm Eric Garland, because the assumption was that if Hillary Clinton won, she'd withdraw that nomination and find someone far more uh, liberal to pursue it. Right. Go back. Go back for a more another history lesson to 2014. Um, Barack Obama. There was some noise during that election season about the prospect of RBG retiring. 
because she was 81 years old at the time and it was a, it was a fraud election and you were coming up on the end of his two-term presidency and maybe they should pursue some insurance, right? And this was this question was put to Justice Ginsburg and what did she say? So tell me who the president could have nominated this spring that you would rather see on the court than me. And so she held her seat until mm. she died under a Republican president. And the consequences are what they are. Look, I mean, you know, people really did start saying this in the Kavanaugh hearings. It was like, oh, my God, you know, all we've done is worship at the altar of 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 um, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, she look at what she's done to us. Like, you know, she I was looking back, you know, it's funny David Souter, who was quite possibly the weirdest person ever to be a Supreme Court justice, right? Guy who testified in his confirmation hearing that not only had he never had a conversation about abortion, (laughs) he had never had a thought about it. He said he had never had a thought about abortion ever in his life. He had no opinion of abortion, had never thought about it. He didn't have a, he never thought about it, right? He lived with his mother. He was this, but David Souter served for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that, and then quit. He's still alive. He issued a statement of, on, 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 on RBG's, you know, RBG's passing. He's still there. He's there 10 years. Apparently, he, like, does senior-leveled, uh, uh, like, uh, judicial stuff in New Hampshire because he's so weird. But there is precedent for people retiring from the Supreme Court. He did. Sandra Day O'Connor also did to help care for her husband when That's he was right. diagnosed so, with Alzheimer's. Yeah. Anyway, but you know, so uh, you know, and now now this is this is going to be a subject under discussion for forever now, right? If there's gonna be a real issue here, <clears throat> Stephen Breyer is eighty. But what it's a life, if, see, I'll defend. Look, I'll I'll defend RBG staying on board because it's a lifetime appointment. That's the point of it. And she, I, I don't think she's ever she never wavered from the idea that getting that job was a duty and a responsibility, and she intended to fulfill it. And the only time she hesitated was when she was being treated for cancer. She would say, "If I can no longer perform my duties, then you know." But she was, you know, she was doing stuff from her hospital bed. So I think but, that, like, but nor can you rule out the prospect that the noxious cult of personality around her, which was entirely a contrivance, had almost nothing to do with her judicial philosophy and everything to do with her identity. So I have a huge... Yeah, I have I have strong I, I have strong opinions about this because that cult, which developed in the last I would say what four or five years, um, yeah. was is 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 toxic, and I think it it the reason it developed was a a way for her to be admired by a younger generation, particularly of feminists, for whom her judicial opinions actually were far less radical than they wanted them to be, but they still wanted to admire, as Noah said, her identity, which she symbolized. They put her on socks and they put her in a documentary and they made candles that they light for her. It was bizarre. And she, she didn't resist it. I'm not sure what, you know, and, and maybe some of it went to her head. I'm not sure. But, but the idea that she was the radical figure um, who's now being, whose death is now being treated like princess Diana's is very strange because that is not the arc of her career. It's certainly not the arc of her jurisprudence. So it's a, it's an interesting moment that that younger younger generation, which actually wouldn't agree with her on a lot of the woke stuff, um, is is seeing her as this this heroine. It couldn't have made it easier for her to consider stepping down either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, what one thing I want to say about this is that is that. Um, her career, her arc, everything that everyone's been reading about, how, you know, when she was at Harvard, they didn't, they wouldn't let her into, you know, they didn't want her to go to law school because she would take a, a somebody's job. And, you know, when she was there, people, women couldn't get a mortgage. They had to, their husbands had to sign for the mortgage and all of that. You look at her life and her career and the, 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 the choices, the restrictions on, on her ambition that were in place in when she got out of law school versus now this country has revolutionized itself with some uh, social and cultural issues that are raised by the revolution itself about how we live and how we, you know, deal with families and children and all kinds of things. But, um, 
this this could be a moment to celebrate not only the changes in her lifetime and in her career, but her contributions to those changes. Uh, and to say, look where we are now. It's just astonishing. But of course, liberals can't do that right now. They cannot look at the United States and say, it is unimaginable to think if you went back in a time machine to 1953, if you were, you know, an amb- ambitious woman in 1953, the kinds of difficulties that you would face just that you don't even, ha- it has it for two generations, no one's even thought about. The difficulties now are all uh, problems of abundance, not scarcity. They're problems of how do you, how do you deal with all the choices that you have? Uh, can rules be changed to make it easier for you still to have children and have a career and how to raise them and all the, all that, that kind of stuff. But we're not allowed to say she leaves this world a better place because there are, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people in the United States who have freedoms and um, uh, opportunities that they did not have, that she played some role in contrib- And yet, I have to say it. <laughs> Where are they saying it? Well, because I read, all, said- I read obituaries. I've read columns. I've read tributes to her. A lot of it is all, can you believe what she went through in 1956 when she got out of law school? It's like, yeah. And then she went to work to change as all this was changing. And the world is unrecognizable from what it was. The change is what's important. Not the, not the, not the crisis or the difficulties that she faced. The change is what's important, and liberal America hates America now, or you know, is deeply, deeply skeptical or whatever about America, and cannot take a moment to pay tribute to this country's ability to alter its course and to sort of like add to freedom and add to you know social change and all of that in an incremental, non-revolutionary fashion. No, but the, the line is in fact the exact opposite. That nothing has changed and nothing will ever change unless we are revolutionary in our um, tactics. And that because nothing has changed, we finally have to um, sort of, you know, break the system entirely. So it does. It, I've you know, said this a billion times before. In doing this, they discredit all their own heroes perpetually. There's plenty of this on the right, too, and it frustrates me. I, I duck out of the discourse every time this sort of thing happens. This is kind of events because, you know, as you, as you say, and it, it's true that if you're operating behind John Rawls' veil of ignorance, you would choose to be born in tw- in even this Annus Horribilis 2020 because everything preceding it was worse. And yet there is so little faith in this country to navigate its environment. Um, th- what the prevalent theme in the discourse right now is that uh, this is the last thing we need and we're just going to tear each other apart and there's going to be you know cannibalism in American streets and they're going to set buildings on fire and we're it, it, they're going to tear down every institution because we're a horrible people and we can't handle adversity and this is just the, the straw that will break the back. And am I the only one who doesn't think that's true is a little bit more sanguine about this country? 150 million people don't vote. I mean the notion that these this gives up the ghost of the idea that these rioters in the streets were somehow Donald Trump's creation when the when the moment occurred that made them valuable, all of a sudden they could be bridled and harnessed and directed at targets. And all of a sudden they became a useful element. Um, but this this is a misconception. Th- these anarchists in American streets are in pursuit of a wreckers program. They don't care about the Supreme Court because they were rioting before the Supreme Court. They are not in pursuit of narrow legal objectives here. They're in pursuit of radical revolutionary change, the destruction of institutions. They cannot be harnessed or used for any particular purpose. And the notion that they would exist in the, they they existed before this, they'll exist after this. And the notion that this is somehow an expression of the breakdown of the civic compact is just solipsism. It's, it's completely divorced from conditions in the streets. So the notion now that everything will get worse as a result of it doesn't seem to follow to me. It seems to me that we'll be on the same course that we were before because these conditions would prevail even if the justice was still with us. So we'll talk about the threat of social unrest uh, 
in a minute, let me first talk to you about our sponsor today, Quip, because when's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. You've heard us talk about Quip a million times, but this is something brand new that rewards you and your mouth. The Quip smart brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth. Track when and how well you brush, get tips and coaching to improve your habits, earn daily points for daily brushing, and bonus points for completing challenges like streaks, redeem for rewards like free products, gift cards, and discounts from Quip and partners. If you already have a Quip, upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love, sensitive sonic vibrations, two-minute timer, 30-second pulses for a guided clean, that slim, lightweight, and sleek feel and look, no wires or bulky charger, and the multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. Beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. Floss that expands to clean and comes in a refillable dispenser. The refresh bag to bring good coral care habits wherever you go. Plus, you can get brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered from $5. Shipping is free. How smart is that? Join over 5 million mouths, including mine and Noah's, who use Quip and save hundreds compared to other Bluetooth brushes when you get a Quip smart brush for just $45. Start getting those rewards for brushing your teeth today. Go to getquip.com slash commentary right now to get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash commentary. Spell G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. Quip better oral health made simple and rewarding. So uh, we are, we read over the weekend, uh, those of us who uh, for our sins pay attention to social media, um, a kind of nervous breakdown in real time on the left, uh, liberals in the left, Uh, the most uh, potent being uh, Reza Aslan, the supposed uh, religion expert who said we should just burn this whole country down. If they do this, we should burn the country. Now I mentioned Jeff Tubin saying there should be riots in the streets. Um, that that's, that's the most extreme version. Then we have sort of like, uh, uh, the whole dying wish thing. How can Mitch McConnell, how dare he not abide by Ruth Bader Ginsburg's supposed dying wish as reported by her granddaughter that her nomination not, <laughs> There not be a replacement nomination until uh, there's an election. Uh, I was unaware that the no, dying, was not, wish, the dying it, wish. It was not the dying wish that it was till an election. It was until a new president oh. was installed, which is oh, slightly different. Fine. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I was unaware of the dying wish exception to the constitutional order, uh, according to which Supreme Court justices are nominated and uh and consented to but um I mean, now that i now that i know it, it adhere to it literally and it could go to, all the way to 2025 uh very good point so uh i just think the you know now that now that we know that there is a dying wish exception the dying wish exception could be used in in many cases mm-hmm. uh in you know not just not just in ruth bader ginsburg's case i mean you know you know, uh, a lot of people have a dying wish that there be world peace. Maybe this is how we can get world peace. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but this notion of the conditionality of your uh, support for the American way of life, the American political system and all of this. When, look, are we, have we been critical of Donald Trump for the last three and a half years? We've been pretty Goddamn critical of Donald Trump. We say terrible things about Donald Trump. We we criticize him. We have been, people have stopped listening to us, stopped reading us, get angry at us because of this. That's just the way it is. Donald Trump just said, I'm going to nominate somebody this week. And Mitch McConnell, we run the Senate, he said this morning on Fox and Friends. Republicans didn't have the Senate. In, you know, didn't have the presidency in 2016, and they the Democrats didn't have the Senate, so they couldn't nominate, they couldn't get their guy through, and now we have the Senate, we can get somebody through, so that's what I think should happen. Um, there is nothing wrong with what he is doing, whatsoever. Nothing uh, There is wrong. something wrong with it. He's drawing this out until Friday. <laughs> Like a stay tuned reality show style thing. This should have been on the table this morning at 7 a.m. We should have had a nominee. 
Okay, I don't agree with you for for one reason, um, and we can talk about this also, which is they clearly they haven't done any vetting. They need to do some. They've got they vetted these people for lower court seats, and uh, Amy Coney Bryant, uh, who is Barrett, excuse me, who is uh, I was thinking of uh, William Cullen Bryant. Um, <laughs> You know, because that's where my mind just naturally goes as to the, you know, longtime editor of the New York Evening Post uh, in the 19th century. Um, but, uh, you know, she 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 was vetted for 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 her lower court seat. Uh, Lagoa, uh, the judge in Florida, was vetted. She was voted 85. She she was confirmed 85 to 15. Barrett was confirmed. I don't know, 53, 47, something like that. Um, but they're, but, you know, they just need to like, make sure that, you know, their husbands didn't have a DUI, you know, they don't have a kid who, you know, like was arrested for, you know, whatever, some, whatever thing you have to do a little due diligence for at least a couple of days to make sure that the two or three people who are at the top of your list, nothing's happened that could be used to derail the nomination or embarrass you, uh, which is why there's often a gap. And that this is already being fast-tracked. They may need a couple of days, that's all. Well, I say that only because the pressure isn't on Democrats here, the president. The pressure is on Republicans. And there's a pro- there's the risk here that this nominee understands that they'll be Merrick Garlanding themselves, as it were. Right. Um that their nomination will be used as a as a political tool, as a get-out-the-vote effort, and their careers will be jeopardized as a result of it, and they'll be caricatured and pilloried, and, and it's a painful process. Um, and it looks like this is a political process, a get-out-the-vote effort, as long as you, if you don't, if you if you have any more than the than two Republicans, we've already had two Senate Republicans who say, I'm not going to vote to confirm a nominee until after the election. You get any more than that, and there are, there are people on the on the on the bubble here who might fall next, next dominoes to fall, um, who could follow that pathway. And if your objective is to get a, a justice confirmed as soon as possible, with as least amount of friction as possible, you want to put pressure on those Republicans who are on the bubble to stay on the bubble and not go public. And the longer you wait without a nominee, the more this becomes just an abstract issue that's all about revving up voter enthusiasm at the fringes. But we don't uh, know process. We still don't know what happens after Trump nominates, right? We don't know whether McConnell is going to schedule this vote, try to schedule a vote before or after the election. That's a different set of political calculations, right? Uh, he will not do Susan Collins any favors if they if he schedules a vote before the election, or maybe he will. They don't have enough data or information yet. This is a new event. Will it help turn people out for her if she votes for it? Will it help Sarah Gideon, her rival, if she, uh, you know, if, if if she does vote for it? Will we don't know. But my thinking is, but, but won't it help Donald Trump if if the vote is after? Because it 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 holds out the the it gives a reason um, for those Republicans who were otherwise. Um, disgusted or put off by Trump to now vote for him because that's what's waiting on the other side. I mean, a full confirmation vote, but yeah, but it would do nobody any favors if it fails. Well, of course. Okay. I'm not talking about a failed confirmation. We can assume that McConnell does not put someone up for a vote on the floor if it's going to fail. So so the that's tea leaves that we're seeing is that the Judiciary Committee wants hearings. Uh, everybody wants a nominee. Yeah. And the full Senate doesn't want to vote. So that's what we're going to see. Well, right. So in that case, it doesn't really matter when Trump does or doesn't do this this week. Because yeah. what you're saying is there's probably not going to be a vote before the election. Whether he does it tomorrow or he does it Friday is immaterial. Well, I don't think it's preordained that you won't see a vote before the election. Okay, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's preordained either because I'm not sure that the fog that it was created – by the democratic liberal hysteria over the weekend may mask the potential advantage here, which is also 
you can't walk around saying Republicans respect nothing and they they stand for nothing and they'll do anything and they'll do all this. And then when Donald Trump nominates someone and McConnell wants to like, you you know, the outrage, it's very hard to generate. This is the thing that's going to generate renewed outrage that will drive people to the polls. It's not even a, a change in the ideological composition of the court. Yeah, and it, it, it actually moves, you know, it's funny because it gives, it, it's given the kind of uh, whatever Black Lives Matter uh, far left extremist uh, activists who've been a little bit in the doldrums the last few weeks, uh, it gives them a new target, right? So they were all marching on McConnell's private home over the weekend and, you know, shouting and demanding, you know, don't you dare. Uh, hold a hold a vote on a nominee. So it gives the the kind of professional activist class of, of another new target and renewed ambition. But I I think you're right that it doesn't necessarily change the minds of the voters that Trump needs to persuade. Right. I, I mean, all I'm saying is there are the voters that Trump needs to persuade. Then there's the whole question. So so I don't know how this cuts politically, is what I'm saying. And so the fact that it may, as the dust clears and the fact that what is going on is a perfectly normal process and that what's abnormal about it supposedly is that this is a vote that would take place in 40 days as opposed to you know three months or two months or something like that when Ginsburg herself was the time between her nomination and her uh, approval was 46 days and we have had times when these decisions were made in 29 days or 20 days. Apparently, Sandra Day O'Connor was 19 days or something like that. So as the dust clears and all the only thing they have against this is that McConnell didn't let there be a vote on, uh, you know, on Mer- a hearing or a vote on Merrick Garland. That is the only norm that he is violating is that he said this shouldn't happen in an election year and then now he says, well, what I meant was it shouldn't happen in an election year when the president and the Senate are controlled by different – when the executive branch and the Senate are controlled by different parties, which again, as I say, is Talmudic nonsense and he doesn't mean it and he knows that nobody believes it and he's a power politician and he is – and by the way, the other thing is talk about um, defending the prerogatives of your institution – Right, this notion that the Senate has to plan its schedule around the presidential election, Pre- Senate doesn't work for the president. McConnell doesn't work for the president. The Senate can have a hearing any goddamn time it wants. That's why when McConnell said we're not going to have this hearing until after the election, he did so knowing that it's like it's not fair. Where there should be a hearing, there should be a p- person on the court. Well, don't tell him. This is the Senate's. This is the Constitution isolates this to the Senate. Like, what are you talking about? So, sorry. yeah. Sorry. Just, uh, I feel like that, the, as I said earlier, the, the argument that Republicans are engaging in rank hypocrisy, while not compelling for partisans, does have the force of moral suasion. Unlike. On whom? These, on people who are persuaded by moral suasion, which is not a somebody who's a partisan. So these partisan can rationalize themselves into any course of action in pursuit of raw power. Um, those who are less inclined towards power are perhaps more moved by argumentation. Uh, and I think it's a powerful argument to say that Republicans are engaging in rank hypocrisy, that they didn't want in 2016. They're doing it now. And at least, you know, the Republican line in 2016 was that voters should have a say over this outcome. And, and you should. You should have a say over this outcome. But so are Democrats. That's an argument that makes a lot of sense. What they're doing instead, though, amid this um, emotional breakdown is putting a gun to the head of everything that comes within proximity of them. Uh, and that's not compelling at all. In fact, it might have the opposite effect. Abe, you were... Oh, but but, but the, the same exact argument applies to Democrats who are, who are engaging in rank hypocrisy. They are not opposing this on principle. They're, they're already on record that they, this is a principle that they don't adhere to. Yeah, I mean, the whole point is that McConnell said that there shouldn't be a hearing in the election year. And now he says, well, that was because of different parties. But yeah, so he is exposed. And Lindsey Graham is terribly exposed. And by the way, Joe Biden was terribly exposed. Joe Biden, Joe Biden said right. explicitly um, now that um, 
you know, the, the, the people elect the president and the president should appoint the, the justices and we, we, we should therefore wait. Right. By the way, I don't even think that that's a bad argument. This is one of the things that you take to the people. Really, let this be a focus of the first debate, which is coming up in nine days or eight days. It can be a very serious point of discussion. What is the role of the elector of the process of the election in determining the composition of the Supreme Court? Should the Supreme Court be as important as it is? Should these choices, you know, make revolutionary changes in American life? Should we have to go through these spasms every time? a conservative justice who annoys liberals is appointed and therefore, you know, is nominated and therefore uh, the the outrage machine using Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer and the New York Times publishing any nonsense, barbaric allegation against people with no supporting evidence whatsoever. So is this the way we should live? Let this be a subject. That's, in fact, McConnell was McConnell's point in 2016 and could be his point in 2020. So let Trump and Biden argue this out next week right? and see if any votes change. Because this is what I'm saying. I think that when people, when people who are not already determined hear Democrats say this is not fair, we should wait until after the election – they may say yes, they may say no, but it's an arguable proposition. The idea that it's an act of unique horror and mendacity and a violation of our the very core principles of our system, I know that most people who are undecided are probably low-information voters and they don't think about this, but I don't know. I mean, is that really going to pass the smell test? They also they think all politicians lie. Saying Mitch McConnell is lying does not have the power that maybe it once did. What do you? I had an exchange with a a a, a friend of mine, uh, a pundit who, you know, went all you know uh, arch and horrible about this. Who said, you know, the, I just can't deal with the mendacity. And I was like, a mendacious politician. Well, you know, shiver me timber. <laughs> like, are I mean, in the end. They say what they have to say, and they they face the public, and the public decides whether their mendacity is enough to cause them to lose their seat, right? I mean, you know, they, people shouldn't lie. It's very bad. It harms our institutions and all of that. But let's – can we just not be like Babbitt? I mean, this is this is ridiculous, Politicians lie all the time. Everybody lies all the time in life. Like what, you know, I mean, I don't understand this notion that because McConnell is lot, you know, because McConnell has come up with a nonsense justification for why he is going to muscle through on a very important political point that he may be able to make when Democrats conceivably could take the leadership away from him. And this could be the last thing that he does. Uh, and his crowning achievement would be that he would have confirmed three Supreme Court justices in the last six years, or, you know, led the Senate that confirmed three Supreme Court justices. Yeah, he'll take the hit for lying. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's not enough for him. He doesn't have to defend him. He has decided he does not have to defend his own integrity here on that point because the stakes are too high. And the public will be in a position to judge whether he... And the Republicans in are 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 well, right about that. And and to to Noah's point about holding holding the country hostage in some ways, I think if you, I mean, I, as a conservative, I am concerned about the erosion of civility, the erosion of norms, and what it means for what people's faith and trust in institutions. That this concerns us, and it should as conservatives. So all of this does have a kind of long term effect, which some hand wringing is justified for. But in in given the current situation there's a much greater threat to norms and civility when the country is told by leaders in the Democratic Party that threats of, who make threats of violence or encourage kind of uh, an, an overreaction to typical procedures and how they happen, because that's how the Constitution says they should happen, as well as to some of the norm busting that, you know, they're they're very eager to do with the Electoral College or with, the, with um, uh, packing the court. So I think 
if you have to weigh the, the greater risk in terms of norm violation, it strikes me that McConnell's, although still a norm violation, is less has has a likelihood of less long term deleterious consequences than perhaps what the other side is arguing. I remain convinced that court packing is an empty threat um, <clears throat> because we've been talking about this for so long. We know the contours of the issue in order for the for Democrats to pursue this. They would have to control all the levers of power in government with pretty prohibitive majorities, and they would have to sacrifice the pursuit of an agenda in order to to do that. It would leverage political capital they would otherwise be using to craft statute that the Supreme Court would only otherwise interpret. Um, so if they were to, say, you know, try to reframe constitutional uh, prescriptions on the certain, certain legislative activities that they want to do, then they have to stop doing that and then devote probably a year to messaging around the overturning this this uh, balance in the court that has pertains for over 150 years. Um, that's a big derailment of any kind of progressive agenda that they might want to see pursued. Maybe they can convince themselves that the outcome will be worth it. But once they get into that fight, there's no getting out of it. And it's a long, protracted war that I don't think they, they really want to prosecute. Look, I think when Chuck Schumer said yesterday, if you do this, everything is on the table. I think, and I think you mentioned this earlier in the show, Noah, that everything is already on, on everything's <laughs> already on the table. And Christine, you're right. Like w- w- the condition, the current condition of American politics is awful. Um, uh, there is no trust between the parties. It's very hard for there to be bipartisan. You know, uh, any anything happen in a good way. Look at, look at what Nancy Pelosi is doing with the, with the Corona relief stuff. I mean, uh, it's outrageous. She's literally is preventing. Yeah. What? You mean invoking the Jim Crow era relic of filibuster in order that, that, that nakedly segregationist tool of racists and bigot throughout American history to block coronavirus relief. I mean, I think that the press would pull on these threads. But yeah. um, just a little right. inconvenient. But what I'm saying is, like, I mean, you know, they, we find ourselves in a position where we keep talking about norms and norms and norms. And liberals now, outraged liberals, talk about norms and norms and norms. And I, I really don't like what aboutism, but I'm going to say it again. Where were they when Barack Obama said, I have a pen and a phone? Mm-hmm. Where were they when Barack Obama said that it was okay for him 27 times previously having said that he did not have the power to legalize the illegal or to suspend the procedures according to which people in the country illegally were processed and sent home uh, to wherever they came from? Where were they? Where were they? Why weren't they screaming about the violation of norms? Everything that has happened in the Trump administration that has questioned or violated uh, proper con- the constitutional balance of between the executive branch and the legislative branch was anticipated and done first. The ground was softened and everything was done by Obama. And that's why when they claim, when they scream about norms, and I agree with them that the norm violations are terrible – they are they are in no position to that we should have any trust whatsoever that they will be in a position to reestablish the norms that they themselves violate that they themselves crossed rubicons right daca was a crossing of the rubicon killing the eliminating the filibuster by harry reid was a crossing of a rubicon um this is what this is what it means they they engage in power politics but that's all fine because their power politics is for the good as they see it. And when conservatives do it, it's norm violation for no good reason. Now, a lot of that stuff with Trump probably is norm violation for no good reason, particularly if it involves his companies, his children, whatever. I mean, it's terrible, and I'm, I, I hold no brief for it, and I'm not going to defend it, and we've attacked it. But they don't get to pick and choose. If you want to be a defender of norms and a defender of tradition, you get to you don't get to pick and choose. Not only that, I mean, so I mean, you get to pick and choose a little. Like you know, you know, not all traditions are good, obviously. But the very same people who are now screaming about how this would be a violation of norms, imagine where they'd be if this is not going to happen. If um, Trump held off the nomination. Then the election happened. 
Trump wins. Then these very same people would be would be violating much larger norms by by trying to delegitimize the presidential election, saying it was fraudulent and fixed and somehow. And we cannot allow um, a nomination to take place now by this fraudulently elected president. I mean, there is that's where that's where. Yeah, that's where the legitimacy talk. And we said this about Trump in 2016. And it's true. And we said it about Trump and, and it's true. But the anti-Trump delegitimization talk is just throwing logs on a fire of instability that will make whatever whatever Jeff Tubin direct street action. Uh, I went to high school with Jeff Tubin, so that's that's one of the reasons that I keep referring to him. Um, Jeff Tubin street action is like will be that's going to look like a hootenanny. So they, but again, so. They get to say uh, Trump is illegitimate. Trump doesn't get to say that they're illegitimate. And we're, we don't get to say that they're nonsense about how Trump shouldn't nominate anybody until the election and there shouldn't be a vote till the election is illegitimate. It is almost the definition of illegitimate. It's the only problem, again, and it's not that it's not a problem. Noah's right because of the because of the moral stain that it represents and the fact that it drains more sense of elevation from politics is the hypocrisy of the people who are bustling this through. And it's not nothing, but it's not everything. It's not even 20% of everything. It is a talking point. It is an attack point, and it is something that, you know, uh, just as Mitch McConnell said, you know, you will rue the day that you – eliminate the filibuster maybe republicans will rue the day that they that they played this game or you know trump and mcconnell will rue the day they played this game because it will be thrown back at them in some fashion i don't quite see how but it could be in some fashion and no one will have an argument then either but you know uh weigh that against the supreme court nomination you know i don't know uh do we have, is there anything else to talk about? There is nothing else. Should we say something about, I just want to say one thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I didn't like her. I didn't like her jurisprudence. I think she was not really that important to justice. I mean, we're trying very hard to figure out like what opinions that she, she was on the court for 26 years, 20, almost 27 years with maybe one or two opinions that, you know, anyone can cite as being, you know, really important. Um, uh, but I mean, what an astonishing life she led. <laughs> she really did. You know, the, I mean, her mother, the story of her, her mother was somebody who, uh, was not allowed to go to a good college because they only had money for one kid to go to college and her brother got to go to Cornell and her mother, uh, had to go to work. Um, and her mother and her father, you know, raised her in Midwood, Brooklyn, and uh, she found a great husband who did everything that he could to support her and and uh, and and make possible. Her activism was made possible by the fact that she had a loving and supportive husband who saw her as a groundbreaking person and saw his life as being somewhat circumscribed by her ambition and by what she could do rather than what he could do that's in the that's a pretty amazing quality right there and that she managed and maintained and had this you know a superb marriage and then this sort of a career that is a testament not only to her you know um toughness and seriousness of purpose and unwillingness to be cow you know to kowtow or to be pushed down uh, but also to the fact that she lived in a country where a daughter of Jewish, you know, an immigrant uh, from an immigrant family of no standing uh, could end up on the Supreme. I think she said something like, what is the difference between a laundress or a seamstress uh, and 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 having and her daughter on the Supreme Court? And she said one generation. And why was it one generation? Because that's what America has done that you can go from being the daughter of a seamstress to being on the Supreme Court in a single generation. I was looking, somebody, my sister found, oddly, a weird family history of mine on, on the internet. Some distant cousin 
who did some massive research on my mother's family and uh and last night and I was sort of looking at it and I was reminded my 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 grandfather was brought here at the age of 5 by his mother who uh was fleeing Poland uh because her parents had married her off to this abusive much older man who had beaten her and she left him and they came to the country and my grandfather posed as her brother like he was 5 years old in order to get in uh, she, she, he came in as, as her sibling, not as her, and as the, as the son of her parents, rather than as the grandson of her parents. And she was, she took in sewing and she married a tailor and she did this and she did that. And my grandfather died a, a, a relatively wealthy man, uh, having come here at the age of five, uh, never really having known his father, um, and again, like what's 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 the difference between being, uh, you know, a penniless immigrant daughter of a of a of a beaten teenage girl uh, who flees to America to get away from her abusive husband and being a, 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 a prosperous Midwestern businessman? That's the same person. <laughs> it's the same person. These are testaments to America. Her life was a testament to America, and it's just sickening to me that that people don't characterize it that way it, it's so all with that can i just say will... one what just one oh, other go ahead thing. Oh, please, please. The one the one thing we should also acknowledge and that was really um something i fear we've we are losing uh now is that uh ginsburg was able to maintain really deep and abiding friendships with people with whom she completely disagreed politically and her friendship with justice scalia obviously is the most uh obvious example and well known but she had friendships across the aisle all throughout her career and um, I think it, it also speaks to someone who didn't politicize every aspect of her life, at least for most of her career. That was, you know, she had a life outside of her job and outside of politics that allowed those kinds of friendships to form around music and around other uh, areas and around family and friends. And I think that's actually something that we should definitely be held up as an honored, as an ideal we should all work towards in just the same way as her as her career on the bench was. Well put. <laughs> so we'll be back uh, tomorrow uh, for Christine Abe and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>